Amen. Amen. Good morning. Just so you know, I'm excited about this psalm today, and so I'm going to need you to be excited as well. Uh, I really love my time in the psalms and our time in the psalms because we get to examine our heads. Because so often, theologically, we can uh, make things very theoretical, very intellectual. But when we examine our heads according to the Psalms, we can't do it apart from our hearts. And so this morning, we're going to examine our hearts as well. And I want us to think about how we think about God is a reflection of our heart. And how we look at God and how we submit to Him is also going to be an examination of our own thoughts, feelings, and affections. So the question I want to begin with this morning is... What comes to mind when you hear the word judge? Positive or negative? Most people, it is probably negative. And it's important for us, before we get into this psalm, we have to look at the concept of judge and judging in a biblical sense. Because our common misconception is that it is negative. We picture a guy in a robe, and maybe we just have guilty consciences, I don't know what it is, but we constantly think of judging as something that you've done wrong, there's some punishment associated with it, or maybe just being judgmental, that you're, you're critical of others. We have to be careful about imposing our modern understanding onto Scripture and taking a word that has a very rich biblical meaning and making it very narrow in our modern understanding. So words that all of us know, if no one can quote anything from the Bible, they usually can quote, judge not. You could have zero Bible knowledge, and that is the favorite quote of the skeptic. It's funny because that's the hypocrite's favorite verse. It's like, don't judge me as I'm judging you. So I want us to look at that. I want us to look at, it's really what's going on. I want us to look at the context of Matthew 7 and what is exactly going on there. I want to look at two passages Two different sides of the same coin really saying the same thing. So if you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, get one, bring it with you next week. But there is one in the pew. Matthew chapter 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is dealing with the issues of his day, which coincidentally happen to be the issues of our day. Speaking to the religious, self-righteous people. Picking up in chapter 7 of Matthew verse 1. Judge not that you be judged. It's like everyone stops there. All right, hard stop. That's the end of the passage. No context. We must keep reading. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. What we have to understand before we go any further, the word judge in in Hebrew and continued in the Greek means to decide. It means to make a decision. It means to apply wisdom to a situation and come down with a stance. That's what it means to judge. And so there's, there's a decision-making process here. In what you decide, in what you decide in your head, and how you apply it to others, that same standard will be applied to you. Continue. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. In Greek, someone who wears a mask. You're acting like one thing, but in fact you are another. You are judging someone else by a standard you won't even live up to yourself. You hypocrite. 
First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What most people gloss over in this. Take is used twice here. The sin is not, it's not wrong to identify the sin in your brother. Because you're still required to help your brother take that speck out of his eye. But first, take the log out of yours. This is still an issue of sanctification. This is still judging right from wrong. This is still applying wise discernment. But make sure that you're not sinning in the process. Make sure that you're not examining someone else without first having examined yourself. That's the type of judging Jesus is getting at. Because on the other side of this, we're commanded to judge in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, a few books later in your Bibles, we are told something that seems like an outright contradiction. Judge not. But the end of chapter 2, we are told specifically to judge. Verse 14, this is the context of this whole thing. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. This is why non-believers have a problem with this. The natural person does not accept the spiritual things of God. We have to understand these are spiritually discerned things for God's people. For they are folly to him, the natural person, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. These are for people with open eyes, regenerated hearts, who can understand the things of God. Once you do, once you're regenerated, once you are in Christ, now the spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one. Now, this is in an ultimate sense. And that we have one judge, ultimately. But we are told to judge. We are told to decide all things. We are told to live with wisdom. We are told to make discernments between what is righteous and what is wicked. And how can we do that? How is that even possible? It is only possible by one way. Verse 16. For who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Our union with Christ means we are given his spirit who gives us discernment, who gives us the ability to apply wisdom, to make righteous decisions. Examining ourselves first, make sure that there's not a log in our eye before we judge those who are inside the church, as Paul tells us to do. But this deciding is not as evil as we tend to make it seem. And so when you read this passage, as we get through here this morning, uh, shut off your 21st century minds and bring yourself back into, into Scripture and look at what it means biblically. Because when you think about this concept as deciding, it's, it makes a little more sense in the context. But then there's one more step that we have to take. We so often read our limitations onto God. This is the ultimate sin when we're reading a psalm like Psalm 55, is assuming upon God. Assuming that his limit, our limitations are his limitations. Assuming that he can be critical and negative and judgmental the way that, that we can, so that God must be this angry man behind a desk in a robe at all times. Now, he is a judge, and his anger is righteous. And the judgments he has are always righteous. And we'll get into that when we get into to the text. But what's also implied here when we, when we give the title judge and the action of uh, to judge to God, it also not only tells us that he has the, the wisdom to make wise decisions, that um, he can govern and, and, and rule, but he also has the authority to execute. As the judge, he does not just make decisions, he is judge, jury, and executioner. 
So when we look at God as judge, we're looking at him as sovereign ruler. He has authority over all things. He has the right to rule and make decisions. This is what we're dealing with in this psalm. God who is judge over all things. Because no one can compete with him for that title. And so not only do we have to understand judge, the, the concept of judging in the Bible, we also have to discern between what it means for us to judge and what it means for God to judge. Because we have to be honest. Many people... Most of us do not want God to be in control. We do, not want we do not want God to judge. We want to judge. We want to have final authority and final say. We want to decide for ourselves. This is what really tugs at people's pride and people's sensitivities, and we're going to do a little bit of that this morning, probably a lot of that. But what my real concern here is that, one, you are a Christian, and you fight this. You fight God as judge. You fight God as supreme ruler, and you want God to follow your demands and fit into your idea of who he should be. And number two, you're not a Christian. You think you are God. And this sovereign ruler has wrath that is poured out on everyone who rebels against him. And that is what we're dealing with this morning. We have one God, we have one throne, and you're not on it. But when you know who's on the throne, you can celebrate because our God is good. And everything he does is righteous and pure. We're going to work through that this morning. What I love about this psalm, which is different from the psalm last week, Deshaun began in Psalm 73, there's a wavering in Psalm 73. He gets, he gets, he gets mad at God, he snarls at, at, at God, he's, he's bitter in his heart. There's no wavering in this psalm. This is a psalm of thanksgiving. And when we think about thanksgiving, we also tend to limit how we thank God versus the, the things that we like, right? We, we, we have this, this picture in, in, in our culture, we love to sing uh, Valentine's Day songs about God. It's, it's someone, someone called it Boyfriend Jesus, which is probably, probably accurate to a lot of the, a lot of the songs, right? It's, it's all about this, this, this bubbly feeling and only good things in our, in our minds. I like all these attributes, so these are what I'm going to focus on. But the psalmist is thankful for God's decision-making, is thankful for God's raising up and putting down, is thankful for God's wrath poured out on the wicked, as we should be. And so while in this psalm, it's interesting that the speaker changes, but the tone does not change. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 75. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a psalm of a soft, a song. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast, and to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with a haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west, nor from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off. But the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. Let's pray. 
Our God, you are a righteous judge. You are sovereign ruler over all things. There is nothing that is outside of your purview, nothing that is outside of your control, nothing that is against your will. Lord, we praise you as the only one worthy of our praise. Lord, who knows all things and controls all things and upholds all things. Lord, help us to celebrate with the psalmist every aspect of your character. Help us to glorify you for who you really are and convict us and forgive us if we try to craft you into our image. Break our hearts where we have limited you. Adjust our minds where we place our limitations and our understandings upon you. Encourage us with the mind of Christ that we might view you rightly and praise you rightly. It is in Jesus' name we pray, and by the power of the Holy Spirit we say, Amen. Amen. So the first couple of things we want to see in this introduction. When you read the Psalms, you've got to be careful. Uh, the, the introductions help us to understand this, the Psalms as, as well, and they are part of the original text. First thing, to the choir master, this is a song. They sung this. Again, this is not, this is not a, a Valentine's Day song about God's love being repeated a hundred times. Now, God's love is in here, certainly. But you can only understand the love of God when you understand him for who he really is. That's the first thing. Second thing, uh, according to do not destroy. What is that? We don't know. Um, what we do know, this, applies, this appears in many psalms. Uh, and there's a, there's a note at the beginning of Psalm 57 that when David was hiding out from, from Saul, that it, it's attributed to this do not destroy. So it's probably a familiar tune, but David is famous for saying do not destroy him. When David's men have the opportunity to kill Saul, they don't. And so there's, there's probably a song that was penned to that occasion, and this is the tune that they're using for this. And then we get a soft, the same man that uh, Deshaun discussed last week, so I'm not going to go into great detail about who he is, but the one thing we need to remember, he's a Levitical priest. And as a priest, he has a priestly role. He has a priestly role to protect the word of God and to declare the praises of God and to, to direct God's people in right worship. And so he is approaching this in his priestly duty. And if we are in Christ, we have a priestly duty as well to do the same thing, to protect his word, to proclaim his praises, and to lead people in right worship to him. And that is hopefully what we will do this morning. So let's begin. Verse 1. This is a psalm of thanksgiving. Anytime you see a psalm of thanksgiving, it's usually evident within the first few words. Thanks be to God. We give thanks to you, O God. This is a psalm of thanksgiving. First and foremost, this is the tone of this, this whole thing. But we begin with a communal thanks. We, this is the assembly of God's people. We, in agreement, give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks to you, for your name is near. This is a good practice of thankfulness. There's so much to be thankful for. And if we are only thankful for a few things, we are being robbed of what it means to worship God for who he really is. So what are they thankful for? They're thankful that your name is near. What does that mean? Now, we've, we've said many times that name in, in Hebrew is associated with reputation, identity. And they, they held high the name of God so much. They would never say Yahweh. They would say Hashem, which is the name. Anytime you spoke of the name or his name, you were talking about everything that is God. I am who he is, all of his wondrous deeds, all of his attributes. He is near. 
So they're not speaking about some distant God, the gods of the Canaanites that cannot save, the gods of all the other nations. This is a God who is near, a God who is transcendent over all things, yet imminent among his people. And it is evidenced by his awesome words. They're thankful that they are his people. He is their God, and they are known by his name, which should be enough. But it is also evidenced by his wondrous deeds. Here, we see the sovereign control and and righteous judgment of our God. What are these wondrous deeds? Now, there are many to speak of. And this is a practice that we see, especially throughout the Old Testament. I am the Lord your God, who, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He has saved us from our sins. He is, or excuse me, he has saved us from our slavery. He is, he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All of these, these things that the Israelites are reminded of again and again, his wondrous deeds, and we're going to see some of those in this song. But before we go any further, this is a lesson for us. When we speak about our God, that should roll off of our tongue. Like they would say, the Lord, our God, who brought us out of the land of Egypt. When we speak about our God, we can easily say, and we should say, the Lord my God who saved me from, our, from my sins. The Lord my God who has united me to himself. The Lord my God who has reconciled me. It is often not enough just to say his name because there's so much attributed to him that we can, we can limit it because the word God has lost all meaning in our culture. When you say God, you can speak to a Muslim, a Mormon, a Buddhist who will all have a similar concept. And you can all nod in agreement and be saying many completely different things. The Israelites were careful because there were many gods in their culture too. So they were careful to talk about their God specifically and declare his wondrous deeds along with them. And that's what is going on here. So the first thing we'll notice, there's a change in voice here. So you get this, this third person, um, or excuse me, first person plural, we, Now we get first person singular, and it's rare in the Psalms that God speaks in the first person. So you get a transition from Asaph leading worship to God speaking directly to his people, verse 2. What are some of those wondrous deeds at the time, at the set time that I will appoint? First thing we need to see is that there is no time or no thing that is outside of God's control. So God sets times even further. Not just that there's no time out of his control, but that he appoints it. And this is important for us. This is another thing that that we wrestle with, with God being sovereign rule, sovereign judge. We have this idea that God can be in control of the big things, or there's there's certain things, but this is outside of God's will. I've heard well-meaning Christians say, I know that that couldn't be God's will for that to happen. Well, where is your little God when that happened? God sets times and appoints seasons. There is nothing outside of his control. God just doesn't decide outcomes, but he decides timing. That is how great our God is. Down to the very appointed time is in his hands. And at the set time, I will appoint, I will judge, I will decide with equity. This word equity is, is really cool in the Hebrew. It means even or level, but it's a word that's applied to pouring wine. So when you pour out wine, it never comes uneven. It's not like some of it goes up here, some of it goes over there. It always pours in an even stream. That is how God's judging is. It's an even stream. I judge with equity. It is never out of order. It is always smooth and level. That's what God's judgment is. 
And he, judge, he judges all creation and all creations, everything in creation. Look at the next verse. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, the earth, the creation itself, and all the creations in the earth, it is I who keeps steady its pillars. The word totter in the Hebrew, and I love these word studies, so forgive me if I'm going to geek out here, but it, it means melt. So it feels like the earth is kind of, it's sitting on sand, like it's, like, like it's melting, like it's moving into chaos, and, and people are, are in fear because it doesn't seem like the world is stable. And when the earth totters, it's going to happen. It's going to feel like that. Whether it's the earth or it's our own very lives, when things are going wrong in our lives, we feel like the very ground beneath us is, is melting. Like, I don't even have anything sure to stand on. It's like I'm, I'm standing on sand. Like, we're in a world that is, that is built on, on sand, and nothing seems stable. When that happens, it is I who keeps steady its pillars. This is one of the most beautiful promises of God. There are many beautiful promises of God. But we know this in our world, it feels like it's tottering. You have to turn on the news for five seconds. You have to go through your, your life for five minutes, and it feels like the world around you is tottering. When we see wars and division and turmoil and heartbreak and death and sin and all of these things, no matter how war, uh, chaotic the world gets, no matter how chaotic our lives get, chaos will never reign supreme because our God holds up the very pillars that hold the earth. I don't know if you've ever seen Atlas in, in Greek mythology. He's the guy who's holding the ball on the back of his head. He's the, you know, holding the, the heavens it's, it, it's supposed to be. And that's a small glimpse of it, but he's, but he's still struggling. It's a great weight. Our God is like the Harlem Globetrotters. It takes one, one, one finger with, with no effort holding up the sphere. And sometimes the simplest songs we sing to our kids are so true. He's got the whole world in his hands, and it is effortless. He holds up the pillars. It is by his strength. And he keeps us steady with his mighty right hand. Uh, one of our most beloved hymns illustrates this really well. This is my father's world. I'm not as brave as Deshaun. I'm not going to sing. Um, but listen to these words because it identifies what's going on in this psalm so well. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. My, why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. Amen? And the people of God should be able to say that confidently. Our God holds up the very pillars of the earth. Those who praise him in faith, we don't need to fear the judgment of the Lord. We don't need to fear his judgment. judgment. But the boastful and the wicked do. If you are not the people of God, if you cannot thank him for his judgment, you, you ought to fear him. The ones who are trusting in themselves, the ones who, put, who, put, who confidently stand in their sin, who are trying to be their own pillars, who are trying to hold up the world on their back, who think that they are Atlas, those are the ones who need to fear. And God speaks to them as well. Look at verse 4. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your head. God is judge and he rules all creation. Is that any, coast, any cause for boasting? Any cause for defiance? God the king who sustains all things? Of course not. 
It says, I say to the boastful, do not boast. To the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Now, when we read these psalms, we have to understand that there's a lot of references to, to things that we don't really understand. We don't have sheep and goats running around and, and you know, antelopes and all that. Uh, but a horn was a very uh, symbolic but also useful thing. So an animal horn could be used as an instrument. Uh, it could also be used as a cup. We'll get to that later. But it was a symbol of strength. So when, when, when a ram comes at you, it is by his, his power, and he leads with his horns. That is his strength. That is his ability that he is thrusting at you. And so this applies to humans as well. Do not lift up your horns, meaning don't raise your head to me. Don't come at me. Don't lift up your fist to me in your own strength. And there's a picture of, of a, a headstrong ram who is, who is rebellious and raging against the one that's in front of him. This is what's going on with the wicked. And he goes a step further, verse 5. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with a haughty neck. You know, like us trusting in our own power and in our opposition to God with a haughty neck. What does that mean? You ever seen, you know, like you're just really confident in yourself. You stand, you put your head up as high as you can. You poke your, your, your neck out and just standing in full defiance to God. This is what the wicked are doing. When you do not submit to God's rulership, that is what you're doing. You are lifting up your horn. You are standing with a haughty neck before the God of the universe. How futile is boasting? Because on one side, you've got God holding up the world effortlessly. And you've got you on the other side with your little neck and your little head just barely trying to keep your head above water. This is the comparison here. I hold the pillars of the world. You can barely hold up your own head. Who are you to boast against me? So this is God speaking in verses 2 to 5. Now we get a transition to Asaph, who, as a priest, is speaking prophetically from verses 6 to 8. So picking up in verse 6. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. What is he what he's talking about here? Uh, not from the east, not from the west. This is not specifically, some people have tried to figure this out as to this desert or this land, it's not the point. The point is, anywhere you look on the compass, there is no one out there who can lift up. There is no one out there. It doesn't matter north, south, wilderness, wherever you want to look. Because there is this tendency in people, right, that if I keep looking, if I keep searching, if I keep trying, maybe around this corner, maybe around this avenue, maybe if I go far away, then I can lift myself up. And this lifting up in Hebrews is the verbal form of the word mountains. So it is God who makes mountains. It is God who lifts up. You cannot make mountains. As far as you go to the east, as far as you go to the west, go into the wilderness, go wherever you want. There are no mountain makers out there. There is only one. Man has no power to raise armies or nations. But look here. He can't even raise himself. For not from the east or from the west, nor from the wilderness comes lifting, lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Down to the individual, it is God's power. Only God can put down and lift up. He judges all peoples. He judges every person. He decides who is exalted and who is put down. That's why only he can rightly judge, because there is no power apart from him. There is no equity apart from him. There's no ability apart from his sovereign control. And we need this reminder for ourselves because we put way too much on ourselves. We hate to admit it, but our God is very small far too often. Let me be honest with you. I cannot save anyone. 
I cannot condemn anyone. You cannot save anyone. You cannot condemn anyone. There is no power of life and death in you. You cannot raise up. You cannot put down. You cannot fight against the plan of God. And breathe a sigh of relief for that. This is why the psalmist is thankful. Thank you, God, that that responsibility is on you and not me. Stop taking it on yourself. Stop trying to save yourself. Stop trying to save others. Stop trying to fix the world. Go to the one who has the world in his hands. My God reigns over everything. My God is in control of everything. Everything? Yes, everything. Even down to judgment. This is another thing that people, when we talk about final judgment, another thing that people want to take away from the hand of God. Well, my God would never send anyone to hell. Well, your God is not in the Bible. The God of the Bible is in verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours it out, and all of the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Perfectly clear, right? Make perfect sense to our ears. To the Hebrew reader, this would be very clear, so I want to break this down. So earlier, did say that a horn was also used as a cup. The symbolism continues here. There is a cup that is in the hand of the Lord, not literally, but figuratively. It's a container. And he has a container of mercy, and he has a container of wrath, and he pours them out as he wills. This one, we see it as a cup of foaming wine. So what does wine mean? Wine means divine wrath. Well, the text doesn't say that. I'm glad you asked. Isaiah 51.17 does. Isaiah 51.17 talks about this exact concept, speaking to Israel, who's in utter rebellion right now, who's Israel is the wicked, but Isaiah 51.17 explains what this is. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the, from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk it down to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. It's not a good thing to be drunk in Scripture or, or ever. But that drunkenness, that staggering is a sign of being out of control. That, that staggering, this wine, this is a staggering that leads to eternal punishment. And how do we know that? Because that comes up three times in Revelation. We're going to look at Revelation uh, 14 in just a second. But the other details here are important. This cup of foaming wine, it is well mixed. He pours out from it, so it's his decision to pour, and all the wicked of the earth. This is comprehensive language. This is speaking of final judgment. When a prophet speaks, he sees in front of him, but he also sees way into the future, and he doesn't fully understand it, but he knows this is what will happen. This is, this is final judgment. of All the wicked, and shall drain it down to the dregs. What does it mean that it's down to the dregs? That means all the little sentiment, sediment that's, that's left in the bottom. Have you ever made homebrew or like homemade wine, there's always stuff that's, that's, that's left in the bottom because they don't have a great filtration process. Every little bit of it, nothing is wasted, nothing is lost. Every little bit of God's wrath will be drunk up. And so now we see this in Revelation 14, this exact same metaphor applied to the end of days. If you have your Bible, it'll be on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, turn there because I want to spend a couple moments in it. So this is one of the messages of the three angels the third angel, the final angel. Revelation 14, pick up in verse 9. And another angel, a third, 
followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Hold your finger right there before you get to verse 12. That's terrible. Yes, it is. It is supposed to scare the hell right out of you, literally. That is bad news. That those who do not worship God are worshiping the beast, and their torment goes on forever. In the full measure of God's wrath, not one bit of his wrath will be lost. But we will never leave you with the bad news. The good news. Verse 1. We praise you because we are marked by your name. Your name is near. The one who made the name of God near. The name of God who took on flesh and walked among them. He's the good news. He brought God near to his people. He drank that cup. The cup of God's wrath, down to the dregs, every last drop he drank. When Peter tries to fight the Roman soldiers in the garden, Jesus says, no, I must drink this cup. When Jesus prays to the Father, is there any way that this this cup can pass for me? There wasn't. Because the beauty of the cross is that at the cross, there was a cup exchange. Jesus took the cup of the wrath of God and gave a cup of the new covenant in his blood that covers those who put their faith in him. So when you read a passage like Revelation 14, Revelation is a book of encouragement. How do we know this is a book of encouragement? Look at verse 12. Same passage, chapter 14. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. The whole point is not the torment and all that. The whole point is, do you trust in Christ? Because if you do, that does not apply to you any longer. We want the one who took the cup on our behalf. This is why it's a message of endurance. This is the steadfast love of God. That instead of pouring that cup of divine wrath out on us, his son drank it for us. That is what our faith is in. Not just a nice miracle worker who walked around the Middle East 2,000 years ago. But fully man, fully God, who drank the cup of his own wrath so that we might be reconciled to him. So the question I must ask this morning, are you among those wicked? Are you among those who are boasting in your own power? Lifting up your own horn? Are you exalting yourself, thinking you know more than God, thinking you would do a better job as king than he does? When we read this, this is real and this is sobering. If that is you, repent. Turn from your desire to be your own God. Turn from exalting yourself and lifting yourself up and turn to the only one who can exalt. Turn to the one who drank that cup down to the dregs, or you will. Someone must drink it. But if Jesus drank that cup for you, you can shout hallelujah with the psalmist. You can praise him because the wrath of God is poured out on him and not on you. 
And we do that corporately. We worship together, and we will do this with the psalmist in verse 9 in just a moment. But first, we must do it individually. You must turn from your sin and from your desire to be your own God and turn to the one who sent his son so that you might be reconciled to God. Can you proclaim with the psalmist? Can you sing with the psalmist? Can you sing to your God like the psalmist does in verse 9? But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. Now the voice changes again. Plural we. God speaking. A soft speaking prophetically. Now he's speaking for himself. Everyone who reads this psalm, who is hidden in Christ, whose faith is in him, you should be able to declare with the psalmist, but I will declare forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. My God, the God of Jacob, the God of Israel, the covenant God, the God who brought his people out of Egypt. The God who will put his, his, his heir on the throne forever. The God of, his, of all these wondrous deeds and his steadfast love and his righteous judgment. I will declare that God. Because if Jesus took the cup of God's wrath into his mouth, how can you keep your mouth closed by what your God has done for you? This is the response of the psalmist here as it should be. This is why we are a people who tell. This is why we are not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power for salvation. This is why every week, We want you to know the scripture. We want to know what your God has done for you so that you can boldly declare it before the world. Because if our God holds the universe in his hand, holds life and death, eternal life and eternal judgment, why should we be scared what the person across from us at our dinner table thinks? Or in our family reunion? Or the waiter at the restaurant? Why should we have any fear? Our God reigns over everything, and we should shout with the psalmist the same way. We shout with our words, but then also in deeds, verse 10. He says, all the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. There's a distinction in horns here. Because horns is not negative or or, or positive in and of itself. You can be an obedient animal with horns who follows his master, or you can be a rebellious animal. But I like here that the psalmist says, I will cut off. Is he placing himself in the place of God? Is he putting judgment into his own hands? I would say no. So what he's doing is, I will be in agreement with you, God. I will love what you love. I will hate what, what you hate. The What he's saying as a priest guarding worship in Israel is I will let none of the wicked raise their haughty necks to you in Israel. I will cut them off. We will purge the evil from among us. I will do that. I will take that because I want to make your worship pure. I want to make the people of Israel undefiled. That is my role as a priest. One of my favorite prayers within Scripture. Very godly woman. Anyone familiar with Hannah's prayer? If you turn to 1 Samuel, uh, Hannah has a great story. If you don't know her story, she can't have kids, and the wives of um, her husband criticize her and, and, and pick on her, and God finally gives her a son, and she dedicates him to the Lord. And this is how she responds, 1 Samuel chapter 2. Look at the word that she uses, and look at all the comparisons she makes in this prayer to our psalm. 
This is a godly woman who gives God the power he is due, gives God the credit he is due. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My strength, my child, who I prayed for, is now dedicated to the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies. Yes, she does not have kind words to say about her enemies. Why? Because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Judging. The bowels of the mighty are broken, puts down, but the feeble bind in strength, lifted up. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, lifted up. Those who are hungry, or excuse me, put down. Those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren is born seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The lifting up, the putting down. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and rises up. The power of eternity is in the hand of God. God is in control of everyone. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. Look at the last line here. And exalt the horn of his anointed. This theme continues throughout scripture. The Lord puts down who he will and lifts up who he will, but ultimately he will exalt the horn of his anointed. That is why we read earlier in our corporate reading from Zechariah's prophecy. If you remember Zechariah's prophecy in Luke chapter 1, if you can get there quickly, do. But this prophecy of Hannah, he will exalt the horn of his anointed, is picked up on by Zechariah hundreds of years later. Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. The fulfillment of this, this, this prophecy, the fulfillment of this psalm, those who rebel and raise their necks against God, those who he lifts up, from them will be their king. They will exalt his anointed one. He will reign on the throne forever. And the psalmist, back in Psalm 75, says, I will cut off. He stands in his priestly role as we should. If we understand that our horns can either be raised against God in rebellion, or they can be exalted with God ultimately through the horn, the ruler of all things. This is why we declare with the psalmist. This is why we declare we thank God for what he's done. We declare the wicked must be warned. There is true wrath and there is true judgment that will be poured out on all iniquity. He is a righteous judge. Do not continue in your sin. Do not boast. There's a cup of anger and wrath 
that is righteous and God is pouring out among the ungodly. But there is a righteous one who drank that cup. And if you believe in him, that cup will be taken and the cup of righteousness and eternal life and life in him and the new covenant will be given to you. And this is only possible because the God who made his name known took on flesh, became our horn of salvation, and he drank that cup for us. So I want to do something different in our conclusion this morning. I want you to think clearly and soberly about this. Because hopefully during this time you've been examining your own heart. Do I view God the way God views himself? Do I view God the way the Bible speaks of him? Or do I have this version of God in my mind that I've limited by my own limitations? Because if you can't thank God for his sovereignty, then you are probably holding on to your own. If you can't thank God for his sovereignty, you probably think you would do a better job than him. But I want us to stand and thank God like the psalmist stand. Because when we... Now, either way, you're still in your seats. But if we're, if, if we're sitting, there's still this, there's the, this sense of passivity. I, wanna, I, I, I want you to stand and I want you to think soberly. I want to walk through each of these. We're going to walk through this psalm and thank God for who he has declared himself to be. And I want you to say it with the psalmist and say it together. And if you can't, examine your heart and repent. First, God, you got it. God, we give thanks that your name is near your people. God, we give thanks that your decisions are always righteous and even. God, we give thanks that you are in control of the whole earth, every nation, every person. God, we give thanks that vengeance is yours. The wicked will face your wrath. God, we give thanks that Jesus took on your wrath for us. God, we give thanks that you will lift up the righteous through your Son. Let's pray. God, we praise you because all those words are true. God, I pray, I intercede this morning that you search our hearts, that you convict us where we are raising our necks against you, that you humble us where we put ourselves in your place, where we place any other idol before you where we fail to give you all the glory and honor that you deserve. Lord, I also pray that we would be encouraged, that we can stand boldly in our faith in Christ, knowing that vengeance is yours, but he took it on for us. We have nothing to fear. No one can separate, you from, separate us from your love. Lord, we thank you that we have confidence in Christ. We thank, we thank you that the cup of wrath was exchanged for a cup of, of his blood, a covering that brings us life. That while the world totters and seems like it melts under our feet, you hold it steady and you hold us. We praise you for this, God. Pray that we'd be a people of boldness, a people of confidence, who are unwavering, that our God is in control and our God is a righteous judge, and we praise you for that. Lord, I pray that you encourage your people, that you embolden your people, that your name and your wondrous deeds would ever be on our lips so that everyone who meets us would know that our God is near, our God saves, our God lifts up. And if you turn to him and put your faith in him, he will lift you up. 
and we, you will be with him forever. This is our hope, this is our joy, this is our trust. This is who we are. We praise you, our God, Heavenly Father, Eternal Son, Holy Spirit. Amen.